0: Psalm 42 uh, closes with that refrain, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And Psalm 43, um, when we preached through this a few years ago, uh, continues. And I believe that Psalm 43 is, is the conclusion of Psalm 42. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The psalmist in his suffering in Psalm 43 uh, calls for God's light and truth to shine into his darkness. And he prays that they will lead him to his holy hill, to the place of worship, to the temple. And then he says, I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you. And so that's the, the psalmist's a comfort in the midst of the deep depression, really, that is portrayed for us in Psalm 42. And that's relevant today as we think of the suffering of our Savior, uh, Jesus Christ, in his humiliation. Our New Testament lesson today is going to come to us from Philippians chapter 2. And I'll read the first 11 verses. Um, we have moved from the person of Jesus Christ. Last week we looked at his conception and birth and the two natures, his divinity and his humanity. And the, the creed and our catechism's commentary on the creed moves quickly from uh, birth to death. Or as uh, Kevin DeYoung says, from womb to tomb. And uh, that work of Christ is a work of humiliation. And we read that in he- Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, Our catechism lesson today comes to us um, from uh, the Apostles' Creed and Lord's Day 15, question 37 through 39. We'll read that responsively. now. What do you understand by the word suffered? That during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. This he did in order that, by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might deliver us, body and soul, from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? So that he, though innocent, might be condemned by an earthly judge And so free us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Is it significant that he was crucified instead of dying some other way? Yes, by this death, I am convinced that he shouldered the curse which lay on me since death by crucifixion was cursed by God. Well, brothers and sisters, as I said, today we turn from the person to the work of Christ, And um, I think it's a wonderful thing of our Heidelberg Catechism, uh, somewhat unique among uh, Reformation catechisms in use today, that we have this commentary on the Creed. When we recite the Creed on the Lord's Day in worship or at other times, um, I hope that these words and these ideas that the Catechism teaches uh, ring in our ears and, and confirm us and encourage us in that time of creedal confession. And so the first phase of Christ's work is his humiliation to be followed by his exaltation. They're both addressed there in Philippians chapter 2, uh, which we read. And it's rather abrupt, isn't it, that our, our, the creed goes, goes straight from the birth and conception of Christ to his suffering and death. Our author, Ursinus, uh, uh, notes two points about the, the brevity and compactness of our creedal language. Uh, our Sinus says, we move straight from womb to tomb. Uh, he doesn't use that expression. But because our entire salvation consists in his passion and death. In other words, what's important to know about Jesus? We don't have a biography of Jesus in the Gospels. Um, one Gospel commentator famously said, um, I think he was referring to the Gospel of John. Um, it's a passion narrative with a brief introduction. <laughs> The Gospels are really overwhelmingly focused on the last week of Jesus' life and ministry. Now, there's other material there as well, but that is the climax. And second, the second reason we can move straight from the birth of Christ to his death is because, as Ursinus says, his entire life, if you had to summarize that 33-year existence, his entire life was one of suffering and privation. We can truly say that from the moment of his conception to his resurrection, he endured the curse on our behalf. Uh, most of us don't reflect on the suffering and cross of Christ uh, enough. Good Friday, perhaps, in that season in Passion Week. And Paul admits that it is uh, strange, unusual, that he preaches this, this weak message, the cross of Christ, Christ and him crucified. We want something more practical More concrete something we can do in the christian life our old man doesn't embrace the concept of a suffering savior Uh, when jesus is on the road to emmaus uh, john calvin's comments on that passage in luke 24 are quite remarkable he says you know the, the two men walking with him on that road are so downcast because they had the wrong conception of the messiah They were looking for this glorious figure who was going to come and restore all the glory to the kingdom of Israel on earth. And Jesus rebukes them. Some of his sternest words of rebuke was that, didn't you understand everything that the Bible has taught you about me, (laughs) that the Messiah had to suffer first and then enter his glory. The pattern of the Gospels is suffering and then glory. And Jesus says in that same moment, await, the arrival of the Spirit in Jerusalem, and then you will be witnesses to this suffering and glory. And if we read through the sermons of Peter and Paul in the book of Acts, through the epistles, we see this pattern, suffering and glory. They use the same exact terms that Christ taught them on the road to Emmaus and then in the upper room in Luke 24. And yet, this message of a suffering Savior is not one that we uh, delight in, like to dwell upon or meditate upon. We needed our Deliverer to suffer and die for us, to save us from our sins. He couldn't save us by advice or instruction or guidance or by his divine power. He needed humanity so he could suffer and die in our place. The suffering of Christ was in both body and in soul. Sometimes we think of his passion and the last week of his life, but we don't think of what he bore in his heart and in his soul throughout his life. That's why Paul, notice he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. When he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself. The humiliation begins at his birth. Ursinus, in his commentary on the catechism, says that there are are seven areas, seven ways in which all throughout Jesus' life he was suffering. First, he says... He had the privation of heavenly joy. He emptied himself of his equality with God. Imagine being the Lord of the universe, the Creator, in glory, and then leaving that. It's kind of like when you walk out of a warm house on a cold winter day and you're struck by how cold it is outside, right? Second, the infirmities of our nature. He took on a finite nature to be, even apart from sin, but hungry, thirsty, tired. All those things that make us grumpy and grouchy on a bad day. The extreme want and poverty. He had no place to lay his head. In his 40 days in the wilderness, he endured real hunger and starvation. Injuries, reproaches, envy, slander, rejection, contempt. We read this if we read through the rest of Psalm 22, right? This is the Psalm of the Cross. David's experience was Jesus' experience. He had his closest friends and intimates betray him. Psalm or Isaiah 53 three two. He had no form or beauty that we should desire him. He became wretched that people might spit on him. The temptations of the devil. We might know some of these in part, but surely we've never suffered them like our Savior has suffered these temptations. A cursed and painful death. We'll say more about that in a moment. We might want to say that, well, every human that's been born so far other than Jesus has died. But there's something unique about his death. And then the seventh and final form of his suffering is the most bitter anguish of the soul. Uh, As Ursinus says, doubtless a sense of the wrath of God against the sins of the whole human race. He felt that burden the gospel accounts, don't brush over the suffering. Jesus isn't a stoic, right? He's not a Greek or a Roman philosopher walking about and just enduring these things with a placid look on his face. Matthew 26, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here, watch with me. He longs for the apostles to stay close to him, to help him. From the cross, these words of Psalm 22, why have you forsaken me, my God, my God? And Isaiah prophesied that he bore our griefs. He was wounded for our transgressions and pleased the Lord to bruise him. The gospel writers focus on the depths of human suffering. The one who in the power of the spirit and the power of his divinity conquers sin in the grave. Uh, nevertheless, fully suffered as we suffer for sin, though being sinless. Now, in one sense, I think it's important to realize that it's impossible for us to comprehend how the eternal Son of God um, could experience the suffering of a human nature that wasn't His for eternity, right? He assumed it for this purpose. So this, this, we bump up against the mystery of the two natures in Christ. And yet, Scripture bears witness that He took that human nature for this purpose, that He might know our suffering, all of our suffering god himself shouldn't be able to suffer in this way um i remember reading one of the early church fathers and sometimes the early church fathers were influenced by greek thought and of course in a greek thought like the ideal world of the forms the divine was was impassable it couldn't suffer it couldn't change and uh Hilary of Poitiers, who's a very interesting and orthodox thinker in many ways, but in talking about the suffering of Christ, he said, it was was as though arrows were shot at him, but when they struck him, it was like arrows going through water. They didn't really land. They passed through him because of his infinite divine power. And you see, there's something wrong there. That's the influence of Greek thought that says, no, God can't suffer. But the God-man did suffer. And those arrows, those pangs, really landed home. And Hebrews chapter 2, which we often refer to in this context, is just a mind-blowing, a mind-blowing expression of this idea. That the, it was fitting that God should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus had to be perfected by suffering and dying. That through death, the author tells us, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of god to make propitiation for the sins of his people the incarnation uh, was necessary so that christ could make an atoning propitiatory sacrifice and Again, this union between God and man is so profound that in Acts chapter 20, um, I just read this uh, this morning preparing for our introduction to membership class later after worship this morning. Paul tells the Ephesian elders, the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. (laughs) Right. God doesn't have blood. But through the power of the incarnation, the God man does. And he purchased the church with that blood. Or Sinus speaks of the great sorrows of Christ in another way. And I think this is an, an interesting thought experiment as well. Asking how it was that the God-man suffered such torment, in, indeed, experience being forsaken by his heavenly father, when so many other martyrs that have followed him went courageously and boldly to their deaths. And this story always sticks in my head from Ursinus' commentary, because when I was uh, uh, in elementary school, I went to a, a Catholic parochial school. And the name of the parish that I went to school was St. Lawrence Martyr. Well, Ursinus uh, tells a story about St. Lawrence, uh, San Lorenzo. And uh, he was martyred in the year 258 during the persecution of Christians under Emperor Valerian. And as uh, many of these martyrs have, uh, they developed these somewhat mythical, ornate stories about how they died and how they glorified God in their death. And so the story of San Lorenzo, that uh, Ursinus is still talking about 1,300 years later, uh, goes like this. That he was a deacon in the Church of Rome and that uh, when he was martyred for the faith, he was placed on on a steel gridiron and he was held over a fire and roasted. And he was put over hot coals. And after he had suffered for a long time over the hot coals, he was still alive. And the legend has it that Lorenzo uh, cheerfully commented to his tormentors, I'm well done on this side. Turn me over. Which, you know, if he did, all all the better for him, right? Um, it, it is... A little bit humorous. I don't mean to make light of it. But um, St. Lawrence became, as a result, the patron saint of cooks, chefs, and some say comedians. Um, That's true. Um, The truth is he was probably decapitated, which is the way most uh, martyrs were martyred in this age. And uh, there's a much more prosaic explanation of of the the legend. Um, Instead of the record saying he suffered, passus est, in Latin, uh, the P probably dropped off, which left he... He, Asus asked, which was he was roasted. So that's how we get this, this myth of the roasting of San Lorenzo. But the story of San Lorenzo is important because we have these martyrs who've gone manfully to their death and not cried out like Jesus, not cried out as forsaken ones. And our asks, asked, how is it that the God-man suffered so much that he cried out as forsaken when other martyrs of the church were more bold and courageous? What's the difference? And... Ursinus writes, St. Lawrence, lying on his gridiron, did not experience the dreadful wrath of God, either against his own sins or against the sins of the human race, the entire punishment of which was inflicted upon the Son of God. As Isaiah says, he was stricken and smitten for our sins. We say then that St. Lawrence did not feel the anger of an offended God piercing and wounding him, but felt that God was reconciled and at peace with him. And neither did he experience the horrors of death and hell, as Christ did. But that he had great consolation because he suffered on account of confessing the gospel and was assured that his sins were remitted by and for the sake of the Son of God. You see, the power of Christ's suffering is that he's taken away the worst of possible pain of human suffering. He's taken away from those of us who put our faith in him God's wrath against our sins. And the sense that death is what we truly and really deserve. This is what we lose when we talk about death and, in a secular sense these days. Are Like, oh, just a natural part of seasons of life. Right? Death and taxes, it, it comes to everyone. No, it doesn't. It's a horrible thing. Death of a friend, Lazarus, is what drives Jesus to tears, to raging against this great foe and enemy. Christ suffered beyond what any saint can endure. He suffered beyond what any mere human being could endure. That's why he had to have a divine nature. Remember, our catechism has taught us that. His divine nature supported his humanity through a trial greater than anything we can imagine. And this is how Peter can write, Christ also suffered for you he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed clearly here he's referencing isaiah 53 and when we think on the suffering of christ this work of christ we should think uh, of of the idea that that his Death, the benefits of his obedience, his humiliation, are imputed and given to us. And this is so clearly uh, woven into the text of Isaiah 53. Notice how Isaiah puts Christ and us. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. The uniqueness of Christ's suffering highlights its significance for us. That he suffered for us and in our place. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Don't allow yourself to suffer again for your sins. Christ has suffered for your sins. Our catechism draws attention. And again, creedal language is dense language. Nothing is said in a creed uh, that's extraneous. Under Pontius Pilate, I want to comment briefly on question 38. It's quite remarkable that our confession of faith is so deeply rooted in a historical fact. We're saved by confessing, in part, the name of a provincial Roman governor. Jesus was truly condemned to die by a court of human law. And that court, at the same time, proclaimed an announcement of his innocence. It happens. Innocent people are charged and guilty in human courts. Sometimes those judgments are overturned through DNA evidence or other things, right? But in this instance, we have a human court, duly appointed, which found him guilty or found him innocent and yet punished him as a guilty man. This was done in such a manner that his innocence might be known to all of history. This is done before the eyes of the whole city of Jerusalem, with the entire nation there for the festival. So even in his condemnation, he was revealed as innocent and pure. And in his public death, his death by crucifixion, he might be known as one who was, though innocent, truly accursed. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming accursed for him, Galatians 3. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Brothers and sisters, we need a suffering Savior. And we need a suffering Savior not just 2,000 years ago in history. But we need him in our hearts and in our minds and in our, our lives and in our faith today. This is why Paul preaches Christ crucified. This is the life-giving message that we need to hear. For it reminds us of how great our sin and misery is. It reminds us of the great lengths Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had to go to redeem us from that sin and misery. And it, like no other message, is able to comfort us in our suffering. This is the main reason why we celebrate a feast at the center of our worship service every Sunday. A feast of his broken body and poured forth blood. To be reminded that we are not promised to conquer here on earth in power and in glory, but we conquer in weakness, in humility, Not only does his cursed death lift guilt and shame, the curse from our shoulders, but it also enables us to humble ourselves, to love one another in service as he has loved us. It is our example, coming back to our text and closing with these words, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, suffering with him, sim pathos, Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Do you see how the cross exhorts us to Christian service and love? Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see, we have the mind of Christ through the Spirit as we're united to him by faith. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's pray. Merciful God and Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, Send forth your Holy Spirit from on high, from your Father, that we might share and have comfort and compassion and sympathy, not only with you, our Savior, and be made of like mind with you, but also of our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And also, dear Lord, fill us with compassion for those lost in the world, alienated from you, hostile still to things of faith and to your truth and your light, Lord, allow us to suffer for their sake. Allow us to bear their afflictions. Allow us to love them and serve them in such a way that they might see Jesus in our actions. They might see the hope of Christ in the resurrection, in our perseverance. They might ask us for a reason to explain to them the hope we have in Christ. Suffering and risen Savior. Amen.